is a small country, thousands of miles away. But what is happening there is important to every American. On Sunday, June 25th, communist forces attacked the Republic of Korea. Free nations must be on their guard more than ever before against this kind of sneak attack. We are united in detesting communist slavery. We know that the cost of freedom is high, but we are determined to preserve our freedom no matter what the cost. If the Soviet Union really wants peace, it can prove it, and could have proved it on any day since last June 25th by joining the rest of the United Nations and calling upon the North Koreans to lay down their arms at once. On January 25, 1950, 90,000 communist-backed Northern Korean Army soldiers crossed the 38th parallel and attacked the southern part of the peninsula supported by the United States. This invasion most notably started the Korean War. President Truman, angered by the invasion of the Allies in South Korea, ordered U.S. forces to push the North Koreans back over the 38th parallel line. As a result, decades of tensions between South Korea and North Korea would ensue, North Korea would advance its efforts to build a nuclear weapon, and of course, the United States continued its anti-communist campaigns in Asia, further deepening the adversarial relationship with North Korea. But this all changed on June 12, 2018, when history was made as President Donald J. Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un met in person in Singapore, not on Twitter, to discuss repairing what has been been a multi-generational clash of ideologies. So what in the world happened in Singapore and why is it important to you? Stay tuned for what in the world to find out. You are listening to What in the World right here on WERALP Arlington, Virginia. I am Bumi Akinasotu. I'm your producer, your creator, your host, your everything for this show. Um, you hear things happening in the world, and it's my job to find the smart people who can explain exactly what's going on so you can understand and, and not pull your hair out. One, if not the most defining event of our lifetime took place on June 12th in Singapore. And that was the meeting of President Donald Trump and Chairman Kim Jong-un of North Korea. This was a huge deal. And if you didn't hear about it, you were probably living under a rock. <laughs> and uh, I worry about you, but you've probably heard about it. You probably watched it and have been reading tons and tons of articles. But in case you don't know, this was a meeting of, of historic proportions and certainly significant to those of us in the foreign policy space. And um, one of those individuals who it's significant for is our guest, Catherine Killo, who is the Roger L. Hale Fellow of Plowshares, a fund where she focuses on North Korea's nuclear and missile development. I, I think this is actually something really cool about you, Catherine, when I was reading your bio. It says that you are interested in analyzing the legacies of colonialism and race on nuclear power and deconstructing the mainstream discourse on nuclear weapons. Thank you. Yes, um, I, I realize that's not a traditional uh, analyst That is position. radical. <laughs> it, yeah, I guess. It should be normal, though. <laughs> <laughs> it should be. And we're going to talk. Yeah, I, I, I'm very excited to talk about um, nuclear weapons in this way because you don't hear about it 
like you said. And so um, Catherine is going to walk us through what that means and, and how we got to this point. Um, but she's worked on both domestic and international issues, which is very important. And she worked at the State Department. She's worked on the Hill. And uh, she was an intern for the National Committee on North Korea, which is a great resource for you all. And so is, is Plowshares um, as well. A great resource if you're trying to understand what in the world is going on. And I came across Catherine's work because I was on Twitter and I saw the fact sheet that you put out on North Korea. And I thought, holy cow, this is so easy to read. I can understand it. It makes total sense. It was easy to follow. I got to meet this woman. I am so glad to hear that. <laughs> I always wonder if anybody reads that. I do. And now here you are sitting, talking to us about, about North Korea. So um, we have yet another Georgetown graduate. Uh, Georgetown University. It's a popular school. Our last guest was from Georgetown. I think we've had like three Georgetown grads in the building to talk about these issues. So pretty unavoidable. In it DC. is. <laughs> it is. And you've got your your bachelor's degree in English literature. Yes. From the University of Arizona. Yep. Not a school that we've had represented. So you're the first. Awesome. I'll <laughs> be happy to hear it. <laughs> yes. Yes. And and thank you so much for for joining. And I actually want to start with that because um, English literature is a huge departure from North Korea. So what happened? Mm -hmm. there, <laughs> <laughs> what happened indeed? Um, no, I'm really glad you noticed. So I was an English lit major. And towards the end of my studies, I started getting interested in what was happening with North Korea. Because in my junior year, Kim Jong Il, uh, Kim Jong Un's father, mm -hmm died and there was this sort of media outburst of what's going to happen with North Korea are they going to collapse oh wait maybe they're going to reform there's this new young you know Swiss educated leader at the helm so I started to get really interested in that and also I consider myself kind of a product of the U.S.-South Korea alliance because my father was in the Air Force and he met my mother who's Korean in South Korea so I've always had, you know, these topics swirling in the back of my mind, but they never came to the fore until college. And so after college, you know, I, I think a lot of kids in my generation really don't know what to do. No. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> you actually have to go to grad school to figure that out now. So I, I decided to go to South Korea, and that's where I taught English for a couple of years and then tried to get an understanding of what's happening. And then I was like, okay, I need to go to graduate school and mm -hmm. actually study this. Mm -hmm. And that is how I ended up here. Very cool. Well, it's not <laughs> a bad landing. I'll tell you that much. And so in terms of your family, you said that your, your mother is um, Korean. And what did she think about you entering this space? Um, so you went from English literature to now getting a degree um, in this and, and working on the Hill. What did she have to say about this transition? Was she protective? Was she like, yeah, my dad is going out there to save the world? What did she think? You know, I, I think both my mom and dad kind of just withdrew from uh, my, you know, getting too involved in my career interests because I had so many different <laughs> interests growing up. And then when I settled on English, they were like, okay, we give up. <laughs> But I, I think she saw my interest in South Korea as um, me trying to reconnect with 
that part of the family that I just didn't really get a chance to connect with mm. in the States. So honestly, I'm not sure that they even know what I'm doing on a day-to-day basis. <laughs> Which is a common theme for a lot of my guests. The family members are like, what do you do? Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I mean, in any case, she's, she's like, chill with it. <laughs> no no intense feelings although she did have strong feelings about me going to South Korea I think she did not want me to stay there what were her fears about well I mean for the same reasons as to why she wanted to leave in the first place I mean her memory of South Korea was one of just constant struggle and it's a very patriarchal you know society and if you are if you grow up in a working class family without a father as my mom did it it's really hard to mm. advance yourself. So my mother always sought a way out. And I think she still holds on to that image of South Korea. Mm. And to a large extent, it's still there. But And do you all still have family there? Yeah, my mom's entire side of the family is there. And so even though you going back uh, with family there, she was still nervous about you venturing out on your own into oh, this yeah. foreign place. Yeah, well, she just wanted... <laughs> Her one rule was, please do not marry a Korean man. (laughs) I think that was like the most horrifying sort of twist of fate for her that I would just end up back there. Oh, wow. That's a topic for (laughs) another another show, another podcast. I think that's really fascinating. And I know that I'm sure given your background, you bring a different lens to the study of this work, right? And you actually have family members um, who are impacted by what we're going to talk about. I think that perspective is something that's lacking in the foreign policy space, which is why you are on this show. I'm so glad to be. Thank you. <laughs> so so talking about memory and, and what happened, I think, with the North Korea summit, um, as we've seen with a lot of conversations, it's important to take a step back and look at history and look at facts. Yes, facts and history. Facts <laughs> and history for what they are and not in the politicized sense, but just for what they are. And um, so one of my favorite topics growing up was geography. Like in school, I was like the geography nerd. Like I knew all the capitals of everything. I knew all the flags and and all of that. So I was I was very intrigued. Um, I learned something interesting. And that is um, uh, today of the 195 countries there are in the world, 164 countries have formal diplomatic ties with North Korea. 24 of those countries have embassies in the capital which is Pyongyang, and North Korea has a diplomatic presence. So North Korea themselves are in 47 other countries, even though they're not part of the United States' purview in terms of diplomatic relations. And if you're an American, this is really interesting because, you know, we, we, in our isolation with North Korea, we sort of think like everybody is like us. (laughs) And they're not like the Swiss and the French and and the UK, they get along. Well, not maybe not get along, but they certainly are in conversations and have been in conversations with the with the North Korean government. But this all started um, sort of our isolation and our distance with the country started long, long before you and I were born. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and let's take a let's take a step back, Catherine. Talk to us about some important historical and diplomatic milestones that have gotten us to where we are today with North Korea. What had happened back in the past? So we have to start with, of course, the Korean War. And the the irony of uh, U.S.-North Korea relations is that things, you know, change so quickly, but also so slowly. 
I, I want to give an overview of the Korean War um, in a way that will focus the significance of the Singapore summit mm-hmm. um, and, and more importantly, the inter-Korean summit that preceded it. Mm, which um, we haven't heard like a lot about. And which was far more valuable and meaningful, I think. Um, so to start, I should preface that when we talk about the Korean War or the Forgotten War as our history textbooks like to call it, the exact starting point of it is a source of contention among a lot of people and scholars. So the standard history books talk about the start of the war on June 25th, 1950. That was when North Korean troops invaded the South. But there's this entire historical context for that invasion that tends to get left out. And I think that's why we have such a this caricature almost of North Korea as the enemy without really understanding what led to, you know, North and South right. di- division. So I think the historic milestone we should start with is really 1945. So as you and, and your listeners probably remember, or not remember, but know, Korea was colonized by Japan from 1910 to 1945 um, until the end of World War II. Um, And during that time, Korea then became occupied by the Soviet Union and the United States. So there was this division within Korea that persisted between the Soviet-backed Um, northern Korean communists and then the American-backed southern um, Koreans. And and just to catch, just to sort of add a little bit more meat to this, the idea is is that the northern part of Korea being backed by the Soviets, this was sort of your communist, communist flavor block. And then in the south, you had your more western, pro-democratic, more quote-unquote liberal Leaning and not liberal like Democrat, Republican, but sort of like we believe in institutions, we believe in voting, we believe in all these things. Right. And we know from and I'm sure you're to talk about this, uh, but the United States had uh, an obsession. Yes. With ensuring that communism did not spread throughout the region. Yes. So, Thank you. That's yeah. an important emphasis. To <laughs> it, it is. An, it was an obsession. And I think it still is. Um, she just put out some fine words oh, right no. there. She's like, I'm just going to throw that in there. <laughs> um, and so in between this 1945 and 1950, there were frequent uh, skirmishes. And th- there was a 38th line parallel border, however you want to call it, placed there between the Soviet Union and the U.S. as sort of temporary, you know, like... Uh, it's like the line in the sand. Right, right. Just... just they, I don't think they ever thought it would be a permanent line. So it was on June 25th, 1950, that the northern troops pushed into South Korea. And that's when we sort of locate the start of the Korean War. To sort of uh, fast forward, the two sides eventually came to an agreement to start negotiations on an armistice, mm-hmm. a ceasefire, in 1951. The two sides meaning North and South Korea? Well, meaning... Um, well, now the Soviet and Chinese backed North mm-hmm. and then the um, the United States. The U.S. Yeah. Right. But uh, the reason why it took so long between 1951 and 1953, when the armistice was officially signed, is because North and South Koreans 
were really constrained in in their own desires to prolong the fighting mm. because they wanted to reunify the peninsula on their own terms. And, and that sort of led to back and forth periods of each side getting concessions from their sort of patron powers to to hold back. And so these, but so I, I want to take a second and, and zero in on that because I think that's interesting. So independent of what the United States and the Soviets wanted, the people who inhabited this island that is now divided by this line, they wanted to figure it out for themselves. I'm assuming that they share similar cultures and family and customs. And there's a there was a history there that existed long before the occupation of the Japanese before the Soviets before the United States and so th- so they were in this time trying to really bring their people together right exactly i mean the the peninsula had not been divided like that in centuries mm-hmm. so it was essential for the north or south to reunify for better or worse and yeah for better or worse they were held back mm-hmm. And and that's actually the reason why South Korea is not a signatory on the armistice, because the president at the time, Sigmund Rhee, refused. You're talking about back in 1953. Yes. Yes. So it's it's technically a a representative from um, the the UNC, the UN command, which was led by the U.S. And then there's a Chinese representative and a North Korean. Mm. So there is no signature from anyone on the South Korea side on this ceasefire. No, no. So that is supposed to take place on their land. There are a lot of legal questions about what a peace treaty would look like now because South Korea is not technically a signatory. I mean, I, I don't think that, you know, arguments against South Korea having a say in whether they reach a peace agreement with the North um, are really going to hold up yeah. anymore. So, so yeah, that is sort of the history, to sum it up, of, <laughs> of how the peninsula got divided. Yeah. Um, and you know, if there's a really good piece in the New York Times by Elizabeth Stanley that I just want to give a shout out yeah, to. Yeah, for sure. I think it puts into perspective this history much better than I can. And the symbolic significance of South Korea's President Moon and the North Korean leader Kim Jong-un at the inter-Korean summit we saw in April. Um, because that was the first time two leaders nor- of North and South Korea were were standing face to face and moving ahead with their own engagement process at Panmunjom, which is the place where the armistice was signed. Interesting. So, you know, that that just I think that sort of powerful image got lost in the US yeah, media. Yeah. You know, this is a time for North and South Korea to really own their their future. Yeah. Essentially. Which is totally different than the situation you outlined previously um, in, in the yeah. 50s, whereby this was this was, you know, <laughs> a hotbed of great power, oh, competition. Great power competition. This is their this is yet another opportunity to make something of their own terms um, without being lost in the shadows of the United States. Um, yes. Yeah. That, yeah. Thank you for that article and for 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 raising that point. I want to hear a little bit more about this engagement between uh, between North and South Korea before the summit. So what were the agreements or sort of what was that conversation like? Mm-hmm. And do you think it was a was South Korea sort of trying to prime the pump for what we saw on June 12th? Or are they totally, completely independent of one another? 
Oh, no, it, it's totally the that they're priming the pump, as you said. So this really started in November. President Moon sort of formally submitted a request to the UN for an Olympic truce, which is actually traditional. Um, every time there is an Olympics, there is an Olympic truce, but it had a little more political significance this time around. Um, and the point of the truce was to get North Korea to participate and maybe that could start this sort of inner Korean process of um, cooling down tensions because, I mean, I think we forget where we were one year ago. Uh, yes. <laughs> we, <laughs> like we literally had an American president at the UN threatening to annihilate <laughs> North Korea. We're going to <laughs> We can talk about that later. Uh, but I love, I love the story of sports diplomacy, right? And using yeah. sports as a way to bring people together because that's not what you, we don't hear about that. Uh, we don't mm. see the, the back story behind what goes on with things like the World Cup, which mm-hmm. is going on right now. Now and what's happening, what's happened with with the Olympics. But I think it's a beautiful story of how you can use non-traditional forms of foreign policy tools, right? And traditional, uh, non-traditional settings to really um, bring people to, to together. And, and so I, I thank you for bringing up that, that piece. I totally forgot that. And I don't think people actually realize that that actually is what happened. Yeah. Uh (laughs) I, I always have to um, remind myself of, of fire and fury. Um, so after uh, Trump's sort of uh, just like it was just like one after another provocation on Twitter or just any interview anywhere. anywhere yeah. yeah. President Moon at one point gave a speech where he actually equated the risk of uh, a North Korean provocation with the U.S. like actually staging a preventive strike on North Korea. So like these, it wasn't just that North Korea was the dangerous one. Now it's the U.S. Yeah, he was saying both of you guys are throwing stones at each other and both of you live in glass houses. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In in much nicer ways. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So, I mean, what we're seeing right now is is something that President Moon started in November and he Mm -hmm. has been pushing, I mean, since then with the Olympics. I mean, I think you remember just how much hesitation and and reluctance there was on the U.S. side to even be like seen in a photo right. with the North Koreans and right. they refused to meet. And the State of the Union address, which was just a totally different atmosphere. So it's really Moon setting the stones and Trump is... I mean, the U.S. has no choice for it, but to follow suit. To follow at this suit, point. yeah. And it's interesting that uh, you know, so South Korea has been an ally, as you mentioned, of the United States for a very, very, very long time. And to see to see the flip in the roles, right, the shift in power, right, it, you see that South Korea is kind of like become like the grown up in the situation. <laughs> yeah. Not right. that they were like the children before, but to go from the position where you were essentially being told what to do by the United States back in the 50s and you didn't sign on to any to the to the ceasefire. Uh, maybe people probably saw them as pawns right now to go from from that to now being the one to usher in this this agreement or this this face to face meeting. That's a significant flip and a significant um, win, I think, for South Korea. And they don't I don't think they get enough credit by no. the U.S. media for how much they've done 
this is just standing alone. This is significant for South Korea. Yeah, they definitely don't get enough credit. And, you know, even as they are playing this driving role in a way that we haven't seen before, I think that is actually what's causing a lot of people anxiety in the U.S. Hmm, What do you mean? They're not used to this flip Ah. in the relationship. And now we're starting to see these fears about the alliance breaking apart. Um, And, you know, this is North Korea driving a wedge between the U.S. and South Korea. And those anxieties, I think, are showing just how paternalistic the U.S. views our relationship with allies. Yeah, just something to bear in mind. bear in mind. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Well, let's 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 jump into this agreement. Um, I believe in in looking at things for what they are and and going directly to the source. So I if you if our listeners haven't, I encourage you to go to the White House website and actually look at the agreement, read it. It's actually it's it's very short. It's it's one page and it's got maybe five paragraphs and like four bullets. Like it's very, very short read for you to to take a look at. As you mentioned last year, (laughs) we saw a lot of back and forth with between the president and Kim Jong Un on Twitter and and you know there were threats of successful missile tests and all kinds of things were happening and and here is my favorite quote from from President Trump and the letter that he sent to Kim Jong Un well just after the first attempt at having a summit it was canceled and then we had the one on June 12 so so he issued this statement to Kim Jong Un and, and he says you talk about your nuclear capabilities but ours are so massive and powerful that I pray to God they will never have to be used. And now here we are post-summit. Enemies have been now turned to frenemies is what I call it. And the White House uh, has said on their website that there'll be some major changes. We don't know exactly what, but there are going to be some major changes. So the first point in the agreement, it says that this will establish relationships in accordance with the desire of the peoples of the two countries for peace and prosperity. What is that? What exactly is that saying, Catherine? What does that mean? I actually think this is really fascinating and unique because previously, whenever the U.S. has tried to negotiate with North Korea, the sequencing has been such that the goal of establishing like a normalized relationship with the U.S. Um, has always been dangled as like the carrot. And then it's if you denuclearize and show all these steps, maybe you'll get that in the mm. end. So this sort of upends it. And it's saying we're going to start this process of establishing new relations and then all these other things are going to come with it. So this is actually, I think, relatively unprecedented. It's also the first time we have a North Korean leader and a U.S. president signing one statement together. Correct, correct. And I just want to also note that for me, it's helpful to think of this not as an agreement or a deal, Mm. but as a statement of intent. Ah, Yeah, because I think we get caught up in thinking, what, this is it? This is the deal? Uh, It's really actually just um, sort of a... It's like a promise ring. It's a promise ring, yeah. (laughs) It's like a promise ring. I mean, I guess if you think of, you know, in terms of President Trump's letter to Kim Jong-un, it definitely fits (laughs) the feeling of, uh, yeah, that sort of amateur, like... (laughs) 
<laughs> maybe we'll maybe we'll get together. Maybe we'll solve the war. And, right. And, and so yeah, I think this this first point is is interesting because it's doing actually exactly what Koreas are trying to do, mm. which is improve relations in tandem with denuclearization right. goals. Right. Right. Which makes it makes actually it actually makes sense. And your framing of a statement of intent. It, so I didn't think about it that way. But I when I read it, I was like, this is so vague. Yeah. This is so like when I think about like the Iran nuclear deal, sure. which is just like you can go. They have a whole website that's hundreds open to of the, pages, hundreds of pages. They've got charts where you can look at information and look at what's been promised. And it's very specific. This is just like you know, we love each other. We want to be friends forever. It's like, okay, but how are you going to be friends? How, what what concretely? But I, I like that you've challenged us here to think of it as like a promise ring or like a statement of intent. Like, right. we're, we're starting, we're courting. We, we are. And, and also <laughs> it's it's sort of like the having the two top leaders committing to these points. Mm-hmm. It gives political momentum right. within their respective bureaucracies to get the ball rolling on the right. working level negotiations. Right, like right, the right. Tough the tough stuff. stuff yeah. yeah, yeah. So let, let's talk about uh, another item in this. Um, the second piece is about building a lasting and stable peace regime on the Korean peninsula. Is this talking about sort of the relationship between North and South Korea? I think this is talking about a possible end to the Korean War. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that they use the term peace regime. Mm-hmm. Because that implies this is going to take a long time to implement peace. You know, it's not just going to be like a peace treaty will come out of these talks. But we might declare that we want peace. But it's going to take a very long time to build that, to integrate a relationship. Right. Yeah, Yeah, peace takes a while. Because here we are, right, uh, talking about this. Some 60, 70 years yep. later. <laughs> it, it's not going to happen overnight. Uh, so another part of this agreement, it reaffirms the April 27, 2008 Pan Moon Declaration in that North Korea would commit to work towards complete denuclearization. What is the uh, Pan Moon Declaration? What is that exactly? So the Pan Moon Declaration is what North and South Korea signed in April. That was the big summit between President Moon and Kim Jong-un. And that declaration was much more extensive as far as laying out like key dates, like we're going to meet on this day and we're going to talk about this issue. And we're going to, it was much more of what we wish that the Singapore statement mm-hmm. would have been. But it's really important that this is here because for a long time, analysts were really discrediting South Korea's, what South Korea would relay to the U.S. about North Korea's intentions. So to say that the U.S. and North Korea reaffirm everything that was in the Panmunjom Declaration mm-hmm. is is really important because it says, okay, South Korea you're right. We're also going to do all those things. Right. Yeah. So we're working together. This isn't an alliance that's crumbling or on right. you know, different pages. We are on the same page. Right. And, you know, I've read a lot of articles about about this conversation between North Korea and, and South Korea. And one one article in particular struck me uh, was in Foreign Policy magazine. It talked about how we think about Kim Jong-un as a leader. We paint him as this like crazy man yeah. who is irrational and just violent and, and has all of these human rights violations 
violations. And, and I was it got me thinking like, you know, hey, South Korea is able to have a conversation with this crazy man. And we were not. They've still been able to do something amazing here. So from your perspective, what does this, what do you think this agreement, this Panmunjom declaration, what does this do for the credibility of Kim Jong-un as a leader? Do you think that by getting along with South Korea, this shows that he's, you know, not crazy? Yeah, just historically, I think we've, everyone has painted every North Korean leader or person as different in a lesser or crazier way than anyone else. And okay, what has been really interesting for me to to see is how Kim Jong-un is consistently proving us wrong. (laughs) (laughs) And also, you know, the U.S., engages with colorful characters and adversaries constantly. You know, how how much more irrational is Kim Jong-un from Duterte of the Philippines? I, I don't know. Right. But all that being said, what the Panmunjom Declaration does and all these other sort of nuclear talks and th- this whole process does is it's testing Kim Jong-un's sincerity in a way that we never have been able to before. Mm-hmm. And I think if you if you ask any any person who studies North Korea and what comes out of their state media, they will tell you that North Korea has actually been very consistent in their messaging, in relaying, you know, what they desire from the U.S., from South Korea um, for like several decades. Yeah. Um, And it's just now sort of coming into the public consciousness that, oh, wait, Kim Jong-un may really be serious when he says he wants to make a strategic shift from developing nuclear weapons to focusing on the economy. Let's test it right now. Mm -hmm. And there's a fourth part in here that talks about POWs, which we'll come back to. The one thing I want to ask you, though, is what's missing from this this statement of intent as you've described it? What would you, if Catherine had the pen and she was sitting across from Kim Jong-un, what would you be asking for? This question depends on how high your expectations were for the the statement. Um, I think what's a big thing that's missing is there was an opportunity for Trump to memorialize facto moratorium on the testing of nuclear and missile weapons. And that is not in here. And I think that would have gone a long way just to have the words in there that Kim Jong-un will not Say that again. So what exact? So what does that mean? What does that mean? Right now, I mean, it's been almost seven months since North Korea's tested a missile, mm-hmm. and what we could have had in here, which would have been seen as a big concession on the North Korean side, is for them to say we are done with our tests. For a lot of people tracking and monitoring North Korea's nuclear development, it's really important that we we see that they are not testing because they still have so much more progress to make and they need to do more tests. Mm. So I think just to, for me as someone who's trying to manage the public's expectations about North Korea, there's there's just so much that, you know, North Korea could have put in here to sort of say, look, we're we're doing all these things. We're really like right. making concessions. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, that was a little. No, I got you. It's <sighs> like you needed to. We, we. You're saying we should have seen more language in here that explicitly or at least signals that they're willing to be monitored or to show that they're reducing or attempting to stop their advancement of a nuclear weapon. Right. Something. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 you know, one thing we haven't talked about, you know, and it's one of my questions is 
how how will we know? I mean, we have this international um, standard in this international body, which we've also talked about on the show, talked about their Iran deal, but it's the International Atomic Energy Agency, IAEA, and they're responsible for verifying exactly what you just said, that countries aren't using nuclear energy for the wrong reasons. And I didn't see any language in here, maybe not them explicitly, but I didn't see any language in here that talks about monitoring. Like, who's going to do this? Is it the United States? Is it is it self, self-imposed monitoring? Is it South Korea? Who's going to monitor this? Well, it should be uh, the IAEA, international inspectors. And yeah, you're right. Verification is the most important piece to this. And it is not in this statement. That being said, I don't, I would have been flabbergasted if North Korea said, we will open, open our, our doors to, to IAEA inspectors. Um, I think they are holding that card close to their chest right now. But a lot of experts are trying to figure out exactly what form verification could take because we know from satellite imagery and past, you know, negotiations where some of their nuclear sites are, but we don't know where everything is. Mm. So how do we get to a point of mutual trust or not trust, but security guaranteeing to North Korea where they would allow us to inspect an undeclared site, Mm. you know, or something that we suspect. I mean, in past deals, that is exactly what killed agreements is the U.S. suspected something was going on in some place and North Korea refused to allow us to investigate. Right. So that is a huge hurdle. And (laughs) that is why (laughs) I I don't expect that to come up in this statement anytime soon or it'll be a while. Do you think that this is uh, so this is so I think this is a, a what the president has done is a complete departure from t- traditional like foreign policy diplomatic norms. Um, and I've been challenged a little bit, honestly, in wondering, you know, if you think that this departure actually has benefited us. Right. You know, there's something to be said about what has happened under this president uh, since he's been in office and the things that he's said uh, on Twitter you know, and sort of just the language. We've all been shocked, I think. But here we are. Um, and he's the first president in American history to sit down with North Korea. So do you think that there's some credit that we should give President Trump? This is such an uncomfortable <laughs> question. Know. For me. I know, it's okay. But yeah, I mean, I always say that the stars have aligned on the Korean Peninsula and in ways that I don't think we ever imagined, right? Because it's President Trump. But if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. This is a president who things are bad in the Middle East right now. And he is willing to essentially start a war there because we don't have allies in the region that are going to hold us back. Over in Asia, that's completely different. Trump can't start a war with North Korea without the international community really, I mean, really holding him back. Right. Well, because we've got there are there are 164 countries who have diplomatic relations <laughs> with North Korea. So. Yeah, and and not just that. I mean, our our ally, our closest ally, South Korea doesn't want it, and mm-hmm. Japan doesn't want it. Mm-hmm. China, Russia, nobody wants it, and everyone will. I mean, he can't. He can't do it. Um, he can try, but he can't. Even though he says he would. Right. So, I think 
I like to give credit to President Moon for being very savvy in leading Trump to this position where he can look like a peace-loving leader, (laughs) right? Because that's what he wants. He wants a Nobel Peace Prize. He wants to come out as the victor. And Moon is giving this to him. And we also, I mean, we have a president who has a, he has a lot of interests that align with North Korea. He's um, skeptical of our cost-sharing burdens right. with um, our allies. Um, he's he's willing to provoke and and he's willing to go big. Mm-hmm. You know, so North Korea is also testing this out too. Yeah. So credit where credits due. Credit to Trump for doing what Moon wants. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> A <laughs> genius, Catherine, <laughs> genius. I, I, um, I, I'm still doing some soul searching on this myself. Um, I, I haven't studied psychology or anything like that, but I, I am wondering if, uh, as I read more and I observe all of this more closely, um, I, I am wondering if there is a benefit to having two people who are, frankly, I think more or less similar <laughs> in their ego, mm-hmm. uh, working with each other. I think there might be some sort of like, like you said there, the stars are aligned, but like if this were Hillary Clinton, who is a career uh, long um, diplomat who gets the foreign policy system in and out, right? Having her at the table might actually, might have actually done more harm or even a President Obama, right? Whose form of foreign policy is much more collaborative and much more quote unquote people have called it soft. It takes a lot longer. And so I think that there is something to be said about having a match with Kim Jong-un in this situation, but only time will tell and only history will tell. Yeah. No, I think you're absolutely spot on, though, that I don't think Hillary or definitely Obama could have done this, not just because of their personalities, but because the Democratic Party would never be able to do this, right? So in a way, I mean, (laughs) the silver lining in all this (laughs) is that Trump has been able to bring the right to the left (laughs) on, on this issue, Now, Republicans have to own, you know, diplomacy with North Korea. Mm. They never would have in the past. Mm. They would have considered it weak, gross. Right. And and now it's theirs. It's theirs. Yeah. So what's next for the summit? What what happens after this? Oh, we're all trying to figure that out. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Pompeo gave remarks recently that suggested... Secretary Pompeo of the State Department, right? Yes, sorry. Secretary of State Pompeo gave uh, remarks recently that... Suggested he will be going to North Korea soon. So I think, you know, now that the public spectacle is over, we're going to start seeing, well, we won't be seeing what's happening behind the scenes of working level negotiations. Kim Jong-un might uh, hold a summit with more leaders right. in the region. Right. Um, but, you know, there, there are a lot of dates we need to be aware of coming up. The UN General Assembly yep. is in, in September, September again. People have floated the idea that, you know, sort of to correct what happened last year, maybe Kim Jong-un will make an appearance. Mm. So the trick now is to keep players engaged and to keep especially President Trump on the issue. Yeah, there's a lot to come. There's a lot to come. There's a lot to come. And, you know, this show is all about making this relevant for people in the United States. Could you help us connect this to home? Why should anybody care about this summit? I mean, 
aside from the fact that I guess North Korea could bomb us, that's pretty important. But I mean, what 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 other reasons are there to care about this? The simplest way for me to answer is that Americans should care because Koreans care. And it it sounds so obvious, but still I think that gets lost in the mm-hmm. media and the mm-hmm. way we cover this issue. I mean, 88% of South Koreans were, uh, they approved of the inter-Korean meeting. And I think about 84% were very satisfied with the the meeting between Trump and Mm -hmm. Kim Jong-un. That's not to say that South Koreans love Trump, but that they They have been... Peace. Right. I mean, they've been living with this constant state of war, I mean, for generations right Right. and it it may not be in your face kind of war mentality but they are a highly militarized country there is a conscription service i mean it's it's in the news it's in their daily lives to see a small opening for actually ending the war opening the border it's it's a huge deal and this sort of opportunity doesn't come around a lot so yeah i also think it's important for you know folks like you right who who are American and are product of, of a generation of individuals who who married each other or who have built ties with South Korea and have had to, for the last 70 years, deal with a lot of what you're talking about. And that is the, the tensions between the two countries and the constant fear of war and or of, you know, people being kidnapped or uh, killed or, or whatever it is. And for, a lot of people forget that Americans are also Korean of Korean descent. And we have huge communities here in the United States of, of Americans who are of Korean descent and have had their families be been directly uh, impacted by by what's been happening over the generations. And so I think it's inherently an American issue because we have Americans who are directly impacted by it. Yes, that's exactly right. I mean, the Korean diaspora in America is our lives are so deeply integrated in ways that continue to be like deeper and deeper by cultural phenomenon of k-pop and korean food (laughs) and i mean we're we're embracing each other's cultures more and more and so it is vitally important i think as you framed it for americans to also see this as you know a korean american issue yeah absolutely well thank you so much Catherine. you did an amazing job and this is not an easy topic there's so much we didn't talk about related to human rights and uh, related to some of the other interests like China has an interest in this, Russia has an interest in this, and we can go on and on. But um, hopefully, uh, well, not hopefully, I'm sure we'll be seeing more work coming from you in your role um, at Plowshares. And I'll continue to share that work. I think it's fantastic. And I hope that our listeners will go to the Plowshares website and take a look at the work that Catherine um, has, has put together for us to stay smart on the issue. You can listen to other episodes of What in the World at whatintheworldpodcast.com or you can find us on SoundCloud, on iTunes, on anywhere you listen to podcasts. And I encourage you all to go to wera.fm to listen to other um, shows that are here in Arlington, Virginia and being played here at Arlington Independent Media. So um, with that said, this is a lot of stuff and this is sometimes depressing. Um, I'm a little excited because this is a step in the in the right direction. But music, I believe, is, you know, one of the 
the many healers of sore wounds and down spirits. I like to end the show on a good note with music. And I ask every guest to tell me a song that keeps them in a, in a good mood. So Catherine, who is your artist and what is the song that keeps you in a good mood? So I chose Yeji. She's an up and coming uh, Korean American DJ. And I chose her song, Noonside. I love Yeji in general because she is really unique to the DJ world. She's pushing a lot of stereotypes. And one thing that she does that I really appreciate is her lyrics blend English and Korean in together. And in such a way that the Korean gets stuck in your head. And so, you know, you'll go to a club and Yeji's playing and people are singing along um, the Korean lyrics. <laughs> Yeah. And I, I liked this song uh, for this episode of your podcast because she repeats the line, um, the other side in Korean. So that's sort of my mantra is to always consider the other side. Consider the other side. Yeah. Absolutely. That's a, that's a great point. And thank you for bringing the other side to the conversation and for spelling out what in the world is going on over there. And, and for our listeners, um, I hope that you feel more informed by what you've heard from Catherine and feel empowered to go seek more information for yourself. So thank you again, Catherine, and thank you all for listening. Thank you.